0: Alright brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles and once again I ask you to turn to the book of Exodus with me. Today we begin Exodus chapter 34. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible's laid out, Exodus is very easy to get to. It's just the second book in all of our Bibles and I think you'll be blessed by looking at it in your own copy with us. The main text is not going to be on the screens behind me. We'll have references on the screens but not our main text as I want to encourage you to look at it in your own Bibles with me. Exodus 34, starting in verse 1 here in just a moment. <clears throat> now, in his book, What is the Gospel?, a man by the name of Greg Gilbert, pastor and author, writes a, uh, a made-up story of two people who are going to visit God. And one of them has never been to visit God before. And so the other one is kind of introducing him to God. And here is what he writes. He says, let me introduce you to God. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know. And he doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the one he the ones he talks about when you really get him going, well, they were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and God, poor fellow, he just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by, and now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we Harry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him, he's here to help. Thank goodness. All the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. Well, all that seems to have faded in his old age, and now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that. But he's realistic. He knows I'm human, and nobody's perfect. And I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know, and I wouldn't have him any other way. Okay, we can go in now. And don't worry, we don't have to stay long, really. He's grateful for any time he can get. Greg Gilbert writes that to show us in a, uh, an interesting and, I think, incisive way, our modern view of God. This is the modern view of God we have come to develop, especially in places like America. And I found that, the way he wrote that, extremely insightful. It is the view of God that so many people have. I want to ask you this morning, what do you think God is like? When you think about God, what do you think he is like? A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think God is like? Now, take a step back from that and let me ask you this. Where did you get those ideas of what God is like that you have? Where did you get those ideas? Did you get them from sermons perhaps? From Sunday school lessons? Did you get them from your own feelings? Perhaps from a kind of general human understanding based on what most people in the world think? Well, today, we are going to get it straight from the mouth of God himself. In today's passage, God tells us what he is like. Let's read our passage together. Exodus 34. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to read down to verse 9. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets of stone the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Generation, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Now, Just like last week's passage at the end of chapter 33, this week's passage has so much that we cannot do it justice. We cannot cover it all, but we are going to focus in this morning on verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7, where God tells Moses who he is. If you remember. Last week, we saw at the end of chapter 33, Moses pray that bold and amazing and God-centered, God-honoring prayer, please show me your glory. Well, here is God doing just that. This is God's answer to that prayer, essentially. And this is where God tells us. Who he is. This is a passage, especially verses 6 through 7, this is a passage that you should underline in your Bibles, you should highlight, you should memorize, you should make notes about it, because you will hardly find a more important passage in the entire Bible than this one. Verses 6 through 7 specifically. Now the reason this passage is so important, so central to the entire Bible is because It is God's own description of himself. We have got all kinds of passages throughout the Bible where other people tell us about God. Where other people tell us who he is. And yes, all of those passages in the rest of the Bible are God's words. They're God's inspired words, inspired by his Holy Spirit. But they are other people writing them down. Other people telling us who God is. But here, here... This is straight from God's own mouth. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so central. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, says, Short of the incarnation, this is perhaps the high point of divine revelation in all the Bible. In this text, we climb into the very center of who God is. I think that's exactly right. This self-proclamation from God here reverberates out as you read the rest of the Old Testament. It reverberates out. What I mean by that is you will find as you read through the Old Testament other authors, the other biblical authors, referring to this time and time and time again. To this very passage, especially verses 6 and 7. I found, at least in my own study this week, At least 15 obvious and explicit references to verses 6 and 7 throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And there are many, many more subtle references to it. Let me show you just a couple, give you a feel for what I'm talking about. For instance, David's words in Psalm 86, verse 15, where David says, "...but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious." slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness." Do you see how he's using that exact language that God uses for himself here in Exodus 34, 6-7? through seven? David had internalized this. He was thinking, no doubt, about this very passage when he wrote that Psalm, Psalm 86. And as you read your Bible, you begin to see other authors use it. You begin to see this language. Pop up over and over and over again, and you begin to realize the Israelites saw this passage as foundational to everything. The Israelites saw this passage as essential and central to who God is. They would have memorized this, they would have internalized it, they would have taught it and recited it to their children. And because of that, when the Old Testament authors begin to talk about God, we find them naturally referring to him using this language. Let me show you one more example, a very interesting one, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah 4, verse 2. It says, he prayed to the Lord, Jonah did, and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now this one's fascinating because you remember Jonah. What's the story of Jonah? God tells him, go preach against the city of Nineveh. And Jonah runs away to Tarshish. He takes a boat the exact opposite direction. And God has the ship crash and a big fish swallows up Jonah for three days, and then it vomits him out on the the, the shore, and Jonah says, okay, I'll, I'll obey now, and then he goes and preaches against that city of Nineveh, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Hear this, all you people, and the king of Nineveh leads his people, amazingly, to repent with all their hearts. They repent, and they turn to the Lord with all their hearts and plead with him to relent, and he does, and then what happens at the end of the book of Jonah? Jonah gets mad at God, like a little toddler. He gets upset at God for actually sparing them. He gets upset at God. And then in verse 2 of chapter 4, Jonah says, God, this is why I was running away. He's, He's making this excuse sound really holy. You know you can do that, right? You can get mad at God and make your excuses for not doing his will sound really holy when in reality you're just completely selfish and rebellious against his will. That's what Jonah's doing here. And he says, this is why I ran away, God. I knew that you were a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. See, God, I'm, I memorized Exodus 34, 6 through 7. That's what Jonah's doing. right? But it's interesting, it just shows us that the Old Testament authors had this passage in their heads and in their hearts all the time. This passage right here is so central, it reverberates out to the rest of the Old Testament. God tells us who he is right here. In fact, the very nature of God means that he must tell us who he is for us to know him at all. You cannot know God unless he tells you who he is. Think about it. God is hidden unseen. He dwells in a different realm than we do. If God didn't communicate to us as his creatures, we would only have the most vague idea of who he is from creation. But praise the Lord, he has spoken. He spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament. He sent his son Jesus to tell us who he is. And through the Holy Spirit, he inspired the scriptures His holy word, his own word, written down and preserved. It is absolutely foolish to think that you can know God apart from the Bible. It is absolutely foolish to think that. That you can know God apart from the Bible. We serve a God where the only way for us to know him is if he tells us who he is. And we must let Him. We must let Him form our thoughts of Him. We must let Him give us the description of Himself. This is what the Bible is. The Bible, most fundamentally, is God's self revelation. It is God saying, This is who I am, and this is how you are to respond. I heard an author the other day describe our knowledge of God this way, and I thought it was brilliant. He said, ultimately, when it comes to God, we are like ants crawling across an iPad, in touch with something we only faintly understand. It's very true. That's how transcendent the Lord is from us. And because of that, we must get our knowledge of God from his own words of himself. And there is no more central place in all of the Bible where he does this than Exodus 34, 6 through 7. We must get our ideas of who God is from God himself. Now, I want to examine this description that God gives of himself in, in two different halves, two different sections, if you will. This kind of neatly divides itself up into two sections. You could call it two sides of the same coin, two sides of the same coin. And I want to use Romans 11.22 as a way to kind of organize it for us. Romans 11.22, just really the first sentence in Romans 11.22, which says this, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. That's what Romans 11.22 says. Note the kindness and the severity of God. It just so happens that God's own description of himself divides up neatly into those two categories. And that's how we're going to look at it this morning. The kindness of God first, and then the other side of the coin, if you will, the severity of God. So first, let's look at God's kindness, God's kindness. I want to reread verse 6 to the middle of verse 7. Look at it with me, if you will, in your own Bibles. It says, The Lord passed before Moses, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord... Now, right there is kind of the introduction. Right there, God is saying, the Lord, the Lord, this is me. This is who I am. I'm about to describe myself. The Lord, the Lord, you might put a colon after that. The Lord, the Lord, and then what does he say? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is God's kindness. This is the, the one side of God's nature, if you will. Now, when God begins to describe himself, what is the first thing he says about himself? That tells us a lot, doesn't it? The first thing he said. If I were to come up to you, and let's say I didn't know you at all, I was just meeting you for the first time, and I were to ask you, who are you? Tell me what makes you, you. Well, the very first thing that comes out of your mouth is going to be very telling to me. It's going to tell me a lot. The first thing that comes out of your mouth, right? Well, what is the first thing that God says about himself? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I'm thankful this morning that that's the first thing that came out of his mouth. Aren't you? He did not say the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. He did not say the Lord, the Lord, full of wrath and fury. He did not say the Lord, the Lord, transcendent and holy. All those things are true. All of those things are true, but that's not the first thing he says. The first thing he says is he is merciful and gracious. Does that surprise you? It's the first thing God says of himself. This is God's very heart. It is his very heart. The first thing he says when he's defining who he is. He is merciful and gracious. This should give us great comfort. Great comfort. And it goes on. It continues. He says he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. That is the God that we serve. Slow to anger. He's not quick to anger. He is slow to anger. Sometimes the Bible will say he is long-suffering or he is patient. It means the same thing, essentially. It takes a lot to make God angry. Over and over again in the Bible, you will find this language, that God is provoked to anger. The Israelites provoked him to anger by their grumbling, by their sin, whatever it was. It provoked his anger. It takes something to provoke God's anger because he is slow to anger. But the Bible never says his love must be provoked. It never says that. The Bible never says his love must be provoked. Love comes naturally for him. He is overflowing with mercy and grace. The the next phrase in our passage right here, God says about himself, he is abounding in steadfast love abounding, overflowing with steadfast love. So many people today tend to think of God as having all this pent-up anger and it's just ready to explode. And then we think of his love as slow to build and you got to work really hard to earn it. But in reality, it's the exact opposite way around. It's the exact opposite. God's mercy and grace are pent up, ready to gush forth, And it's his anger that is slow to build. It's his anger that you actually have to work hard to see. Praise the Lord. This is the God we serve. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Psalm 136, 26 times it says his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times. You read through Psalm 136 and you you start to say, we get it. His steadfast love endures forever, but it's like a poetic picture of his overflowing steadfast love. He's abounding in it. It just keeps coming and coming and coming, which means he's got so much reserve he can just give and give and give his steadfast love. In fact, what's the next phrase that he says about himself? He says, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin forgiving. Now those three things, iniquity, transgression, sin, those are all synonyms, so you can kind of just think those are all the same things. But focus in on the fact that he says he is forgiving. He's defining who he is in a short paragraph, and he says he's forgiving. This is who he is. Forgiveness is part of God's very nature. So come to him. Come to him. He is more ready to forgive than you know. Forgiveness is who he is. It is overflowing. No sin is too much for God to forgive. So come to him. Come to him for mercy. Come to him for grace. Come to him for forgiveness. Come to him for steadfast love. And don't be afraid to come to him. Be afraid not to come to Him. Don't be afraid to come to God. He is ready and willing and even anxious to forgive. Listen to David's words about God in Psalm 103, starting in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love. Toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. And he remembers we are dust. This is the God that we serve. This is how he describes himself. But remember, there's the flip side to the coin, the flip side to the coin. And that is, as Romans eleven twenty two says, God's severity, God's severity. Let's read the, the last part of verse seven. Look there with me, if you will. And God says of himself, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You can see there's a clear turn here in the way God's describing himself. And he says, he will by no means clear the guilty. It is as if God is saying, okay, you got the kindness part, but don't misunderstand me. I do not let the wicked off the hook. I am a God of justice. Don't forget that. Don't misunderstand. Now here, there is nothing to be scared of. If you are repentant and you humble yourself before God. There's nothing to be scared of here if you are repentant and you humble yourself before God. The sense here is that God does not forgive those who are unrepentant. God does not forgive those who refuse to come to him. But if you come to him for mercy, you will find more than you ever thought possible. If you come to God for mercy, you'll find more than you ever thought possible. After all, he's overflowing with it. But, but, if you dig in your heels and you resist every tug of the Holy Spirit, in the end, you will find more wrath and fury than you ever thought possible. Those who oppress and persecute the weak those who blaspheme and revel in wickedness, those who insist upon being their own God, they do have something to be afraid of here. And in the end, they will receive what is their due from this God. And so nothing to be afraid of here if you humble yourself and come to him for mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I think the most confusing of all of this passage, the most confusing part of it comes at the very end of verse 7 there where he says visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Does this mean that God punishes generations down the line for the sins of their parents or the sins of their grandparents? No, that's not what it means. Ezekiel 18.20 is very clear on this, along with a few other passages in the Bible, but I'll I'll quote to you this one. Ezekiel 18.20, it says, The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You are responsible for your own sins before the Lord. Your parents, your grandparents, and your children, when they reach the age of accountability, and especially when they leave your home, they are responsibility for their own sins before the Lord. And so if that is the case, if we don't suffer God's punishment for the sins of our parents or grandparents, then what does he mean here? Well, he is speaking of the consequences of sin that often trickle down through generations. Now, we've all seen this. This is really common sense. It's just sometimes hard to connect our common sense to God's word sometimes. But we've all seen this. We'll give you a couple examples in the Bible, for instance. In the Bible, the Israelite children suffered the consequences of the sins of their parents during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, right? Their parents had sinned. And refused to trust God as they were at first on the edge of the promised land. They refused to go in and fight those giants in faith knowing that the Lord would take care of them. And so God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Some of those young people grew up in that generation wandering in the wilderness. And they were suffering the consequences of the sins of their parents. Or for example the Babylonian captivity Many Israelites lived in captivity in Babylon for the sins of their parents and previous kings and how he'd led their parents and grandparents to turn away from the Lord. But we we see this all the time today in our own lives. Today, children suffer all the time because of the sins of their parents and even sometimes the sins of their grandparents and great-grandparents. It's not a punishment from the Lord. It is the consequences coming down through generations. A mother... Abuses drugs, and her child is born with brain damage or addictive tendencies. A father abandons his wife for another woman, and the children are left to be raised without a dad in the home. You see? The, the sins of us may be visited upon our children or our children's children, which is why we must heed this warning from God. We must heed this warning. Now, notice the language. Notice the language. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. The fathers. He explicitly mentions us, dads. Now, of course, these things are true for both mothers and fathers, for both parents, but dads, he specifically mentions us. It is specifically on us to heed this warning because he mentions us specifically. Dads, if you don't walk with God, your children will suffer for it. Not as a punishment or a generational curse, but if you don't walk with the Lord and shepherd them to know Jesus, all kinds of painful consequences will happen in their lives. Dads, if you don't walk with God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen, dads, if you teach your kids to make peace with certain sins? What's going to happen, dads, if they watch your life and you are one person on Sunday and then a completely different person Monday through Saturday? What's going to happen in their own lives, dads, if they see you neglecting their mother, abusing their mother, committing adultery on their mother, divorcing their mother? What's going to happen, dads, if they watch your life and they see you... Lying, cheating, getting drunk, watching ungodly TV shows and movies. What kind of person are they going to grow up and become if you do not do the difficult godly work of discipline now? What are they going to conclude, dads, if you farm out all the spiritual leadership to your wife? What's gonna happen, dads, if you show them by the things that you do that other things are more important than pursuing the Lord? You might not be telling them that, but what's gonna happen if you show them that? What's gonna happen in their lives? Dads, if we live a life where God is just on the periphery and just part of our lives. And we we go to church when we can. We're there as long as we don't have something more important to do. Maybe once or twice a month. But we end up never talking about God or Jesus outside of the church. They never see us reading our Bibles. They never see us leading the family in prayer unless it's a quick prayer before a meal. What's going to happen? I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. In this culture, your kids are going to grow up. And they're going to walk away from the Lord completely. They're going to walk away from the Lord completely. Do you want that on your conscience when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ? We must let God tell us who he is. That's what this passage is all about. Again, I return to Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. In that book, he writes, The Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is, over many decades, fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. In other words, let's work hard to let God tell us who he is because we read it from his own words in the Bible. Don't get your ideas of who God is from your own feelings or from popular culture or from what someone else tells you he's like. Go find out for yourself. Go find God for yourself. Here in Exodus 34, God tells us who he is. And he tells us both of his kindness and of his severity, right? We've just seen that. He tells us who he is. At the cross, God showed us who he is. Both his kindness and his severity. At the cross, we see his kindness to us. His kindness to us in making a way to himself, in extending forgiveness to any who would come to him through Jesus Christ. We see His great kindness and His great love in offering up for us His own Son. His kindness. But we also see His severity to His Son. To Jesus Himself. Pouring out the full measure of His wrath upon Jesus so that Jesus would suffer for the sins of the entire world. So that Jesus would suffer what you and I deserve. So that you and I could get what Jesus only deserves. God's kindness and severity. He tells us who he is here in Exodus 34. He shows us who he is at the cross. And so if this is the God who shows us that at the cross, and if this is the God, this God that tells us who he is here, if this is who he is, come to him. Come to him. Before you you cannot make that decision any longer, come to him before it is too late. Come to him before you don't have another chance. right now we're going to spend some time in prayer as we do each week. We offer this time immediately after the sermon for all of us to go pray individually to God and, and to To do business with God in our hearts and in our souls. To respond to God and whatever he has just laid on our hearts through his word. And so we encourage, we challenge each and every person who hears this right now to spend these next few moments in silent prayer right where you're at. Praying to God and responding to what he just laid upon your heart. After a few minutes of individual prayer then we're going to come back together. We're going to sing an invitation song and have a time of invitation where anyone who needs to respond to God's word publicly can do so then. But before that, let's pray for just a few moments.